Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Live from New York, I'm Julianne Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Plug pulled, stocks suffer amid the U.S. stimulus standoff. Debate dual-ish. President Trump and Joe Biden to compete in rival town halls. Trickbot takedown. Microsoft discusses its cybersecurity efforts to protect election integrity. And. It's certainly dynamite. The BTS management IPO sets the market alight. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome to another busy hour here on First Move. Coming up, as I mentioned, the tech giant Microsoft will be discussing the exploding ransomware threat and the concerns about election integrity and their efforts to tackle so-called trick bots. Appropriate for this time of year, but sadly it's all tricks and no treats. Plus, a dining out dilemma as winter approaches in the United States and across Europe and COVID cases rise. We'll be speaking to a successful restaurant owner about both the challenges and the lack of U.S. government support. All of those issues front and center for global investors. The handover, as you can see from Europe, clearly weaker after various restrictions were announced in France, in Germany and in the U.K. All the details on that coming up for now, though. Let's take a look at futures as well. As you can see, set to fall more than 1%, 1.5% in the case of the tech-heavy Nasdaq. There remains, I think, little hope now of financial aid coming before November 3rd. The Treasury Secretary said negotiations will continue, but so does the blame game over the lack of agreement between the two sides. And of course, workers suffer as a result. Almost 900,000 New applicants sought first-time benefits in the past week here in the United States. Over 25 million workers continue to receive some form of government support. Wow. Asia stocks, meanwhile, losing altitude Thursday, too, amid new U.S.-China tensions. Reuters reporting that the White House may add Chinese fintech giant Ant Financial to their trade blacklist ahead of the company's upcoming IPO launch. 
That said, China did successfully sell some $600 billion worth of debt, largely to U.S. institutional investors today. A message about the global hunt for high returns, I think, but perhaps a relative vote of confidence in Beijing's ability to fight the virus and contain the economic fallout. The contrast could not be more clear. Let's get to the drivers. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, we were hoping for a slightly better number for these first time jobless claims. And actually, it was a slightly worse number than expected. And I have to say, you and I have been expecting this in light of the lack of support for small businesses in particular. I mean, it's unwelcome, but not super surprising. You and Mm. I every week really talk about how the job recovery of the summer stagnated and is stagnating. And probably the best of the hiring was back in August. And now without the shock absorber, without the stimulus uh, for the economy, you're seeing layoffs pick up again. 898,000 in normal times would be just an unheard of number. Now we have 30 weeks of historic high unemployment claims. And you add in the pandemic programs, that's another 370-some thousand. So more than a million people for the first time filing for unemployment benefits. The continuing claims came down a little bit. I'm glad to see that. Uh, Honestly, that's to have that around 10 million. Again, in normal times, it would be unheard of. But to have that sort of trending lower, that means the people who are long-term unemployed, that situation might be improving slightly or less terrible than it was a week ago. But still, with COVID cases rising, a jobs recovery apparently faltering, and no help from Congress, this is a pretty miserable place to be if you're in the job market or out of work in the job market right now. Yeah, we have to choose our phraseology carefully, don't we? Less terrible. I think we're going to go with that because... An improvement is one thing, but when you're looking at the baseline yeah. here, it's um, it's pretty shocking and it remains so, Christine. I just think we've all got so complacent. Lawmakers have got complacent throughout the summer that we've managed to see a bounce back from the lows. We're still looking at a situation where we're not going to be able to agree because the politics is being put before the people. And the likelihood is these numbers get worse and they get worse towards the back end of the year as we head into winter and COVID cases rise. I would agree. I mean, and I also think we've talked a lot about the shape of the recovery. I think that there are some industries and some people who are getting back to work who are actually thriving, actually, in the labor market right now. And those are people who don't work in these frontline businesses. They don't work um, for restaurants or hotels or bars or, you know, customer facing kind of jobs. Uh, so you have like a bifurcated labor market and a lot of pain is being had by people who may not have uh, the elites in Washington don't have close contact with it. You know, I'm, I'm just wondering how much out of touch Washington is to how deep the pain is on Main Street here. You know, the stock market has recovered. Um, you know, you hear some people talk about how the bounce back was better than we thought. It wasn't as bad as we feared. Well, that may be true. But the collateral damage here is millions of people who have lost their livelihoods or lost income. And we're heading into a really tough, really tough part of the calendar. Oh, we're going to talk about that later on in the show with a restaurateur who did specifically that galvanize lots of restaurant owners because they simply didn't feel they had the lobby power in Washington to defend them in these negotiations. Yeah. And it's such a great point. The contrast with like the airlines, for example, who are clearly still suffering right. too. Right. Christine Romans, thank you. All right, President Trump and Democratic challenger Joe Biden will both take questions from voters tonight. Instead of facing off in their second debate, they'll be holding separate town halls at the very same time. Joe Johns is at the White House, has been looking at this all about this, Joe, get my words out. The phrase preaching to the choir 
actually comes to mind here because you're going to have supporters of each person and party watching the respective ones. I just wonder if anybody benefits, Joe. Right. I mean, that's the criticism, too, because what we've got here is dueling town halls that are arranged in different cities. The president of the United States down in Miami, the challenger, vice president, former vice president, Joe Biden, uh, closer to Washington, D.C., over in Philadelphia. They'll be on different networks. And the criticism is that the networks could have coordinated this better so that these two very important television events weren't held at the same time. That's one of the biggest issues. You're going to hold this thing at the same time so people don't have the opportunity to watch both events live as they happen. And there's a reason for that, because obviously the networks were trying to work around these candidates' very busy schedules at the uh, end of the campaigns and fit them into their evening programs. And it's a lot of back and forth on that. The problem with it, of course, is that a lot of people say it sort of plays right into the hands of President Trump, because what President Trump is going to get on NBC is a simulcast on three networks, NBC, MSNBC, CNBC, which naturally means larger ratings at a time when he's going head to head against Joe Biden. The president loves to brag about his ratings. And from a campaign point of view, at this stage in the race, with the president down in the polls generally or tied with Joe Biden in many states, what that campaign wants most is to get eyes on the candidate, eyes on the president. So in that way, uh, it's a big issue. And never mind the fact that this was supposed to be date, uh, debate night in America. And we didn't get that because the debate commission said essentially that the president was going to have to participate in a virtual debate because of COVID concerns and the president backed out. So that's all the background, Julia. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? One wonders whether the commission made that decision a little bit too early because in light of the test results that we've had subsequently, perhaps that debate could have gone ahead. But yeah, you need a bit of a a runway here to to make these decisions. My recommendation is, you know, social media, mobile phones, one can watch both debates at the same time. The joys of modern technology. (laughs) That's that's absolutely right. Very important to say that. I mean, you can record this thing. You can look at it on the Internet. It's not like 20 years ago when you didn't have other options to reach right back and and uh, catch what you missed. A hundred percent. There are options here. You do not have to choose. Joe Johns in Washington for us there. Thank you, sir. All right, let's move on. BTS, one of the world's most popular boy bands, grabbing the spotlight. And this time it's in the stock market. Shares of Big Hit Entertainment, the management company behind the K-pop sensation, soared 90% on the first day of trading in South Korea. Paula Hancocks is in Seoul for us with all the details. Everything this band touches seems to turn to gold. BTS is South Korea's most well-known boy band, shooting to the top of the Billboard chart last month, a feat no other Korean artist has achieved. It still doesn't feel 100% real, more so because right now we can't perform in front of people, in front of our fans. The next chapter, IPO. BTS's management, Big Hit Entertainment, is listing the company on South Korea's stock exchange, a move that values the company at more than $4 billion, more than the next three top K-pop agencies combined. 
In today's strong market, some assume investors will flock to buy the shares, including the band's hardcore fan base. I'm eager to pick up one or two shares, even if it's just one. So I pulled my money and plan to put in 150 million won. I want to get closer to BTS as one team and help them. Big deal for Big Hit, but some worry that they are too reliant on just one act. 90% of Big Hit Entertainment's revenue is from BTS, so the risk is there. But it has started to shift its revenue structure to a multifaceted portfolio. Big Hit says it has created an ecosystem of artists, apps and content. We drove profit not only through the album and music, but online concerts, official merchandise, multimedia content and more. Military service looms for all seven members of the group, but they could use another international K-pop group, Big Bang, as a model, solo careers. Some also question the timing of the IPO in the middle of a global pandemic, but the market sees it as a sign that the company can only go up as the world recovers. If the company is highly valued now in the midst of a pandemic, it will be an opportunity to gain even more momentum next year post-pandemic. In a rare move for the industry, Big Hit has given more than $7 million worth of shares to each member of the band, a share of the success and perhaps a guarantee for the future. Um, Paula Hancock joins us now. Paula, there's everything in this business story. There's politics, there's the money, there's the complication. Um, just to be clear, they've outsold more physical albums in the United States than Justin Bieber, Harry Styles, Billie Eilish. They are huge around the world. But talk us through some of these complications. Military service, potentially, for some of these guys, and really soon. Well, that's right, Julia. I mean, this is mandatory military service here in South Korea. Every man does it unless they have a particular exemption or aren't able to. And it lasts about 18 months. So this is very close for some of these members of BTS. Just a couple of months away, it would be because the oldest is almost 28 years old, which is how far you can defer uh, the military service. Uh, That one particular member has now, we hear, joined a, a graduate school program so he can defer it another year. But what is happening in this country now is politicians are now talking about this. Should they change the rules for BTS? Should they actually defer them going to military service for another two years uh, so that they can uh, really enjoy their career? And of course, they are bringing a lot to South Korea as well. The, the culture ministry here estimates that BTS has uh, has contributed about one and a half billion dollars to the South Korean economy with tourism, with promoting Korea, promoting Korean goods like food and cosmetics. Uh, so politicians are really thinking about this seriously and there is potentially going to be a bill to try and push back the military service for them. Julia? Yeah, I mean, there are different ways that you can provide service to your country and when you're bringing in those kind of revenues versus providing support in terms of a military service, one, one has to ask the question. But it's a huge issue as well if somebody's investing in this stock when, and you pointed this out in your report, when 90% of the sales of this management company come from one group. They need to diversify and they need to do it quickly. Absolutely. And the company knows this. They've been quite honest about this, saying that they are signing on more artists quite quickly. But of course, who knows if those artists are going to be successful? It's highly unlikely they will be as successful as BTS. So yes, BTS is a massive asset 
to big hits because they wouldn't have had this IPO, quite frankly, without them. But it is also a liability to have all of their eggs in one basket. But they say they're trying to diversify in different ways as well, not just new artists. They have uh, a platform, for example, called Weverse, which they are uh, giving exclusive content to fans uh, of the uh, the particular bands that the fans can uh, can message particular artists. So they're trying to find different ways uh, to make sure that they are not just reliant on one band. Uh, at, at this point, we know for the first half of this year, there's been about 88% of their sales, uh, which have been attributed to uh, to BTS. So it's slightly less, but not not really very much at all. So clearly, all their eggs are in one basket and they are aware of this, uh, but they also see it as an asset and they're trying to diversify, they say. Yes, these are some very sparkly eggs. I have to say, South Koreans, they're used to losing their stars to, to military service and them disappearing for a while. But here in the United States, if you're gone for a year or a year and a half, you are forgotten. So they, they need to think about this as well, their global audience. Paula, great to have you with us. Paula Hancock's there. All right, speaking of pops and K-pops, no pop in this bubble. Singapore and Hong Kong are setting up a travel bubble between the two cities. Visitors will need to provide a negative COVID test and travel on dedicated flights. Officials call the plan a significant first step in reviving air travel. Selena Wang joins us now from Hong Kong. This is exciting, Selena, and actually critical for two international regions. Talk us through what more we know. Julia, that's exactly right. Hong Kong and Singapore are both major travel hubs, so the fact that they are opening this travel bubble is a very strong sign for getting back to normalcy. So what this bubble means is that travelers going between these two locations do not have to quarantine, but they do need to prove that they have negative COVID tests. And this is also a sigh of relief for these places because they've been hit, Julia, extremely hard by these travel restrictions. They don't have a domestic market to rely on to offset the massive drop in international travel. For instance, if you look at the data for this August for passenger airport traffic volume, it shrunk to just 2% of last August's number. So a severe drop here. But the fact that they're able to open up this travel bubble also speaks to the fact that both places have managed to reign in the pandemic and keep those COVID cases low through contact tracing, through social distancing, through intense travel restrictions. So Hong Kong has banned most non-residents from coming in and they've set up this complex system in place to prevent any imported infections. For instance, when I traveled recently from Beijing into Hong Kong, I had to quarantine for 14 days. I had to wear a wristband tracker Every day, just to prove to authorities that I was staying in my room, I had to take two COVID tests. Singapore has also had intense restrictions as well. And even despite all of this, some experts have said that maybe this is too soon. They think these places need to be showing zero COVID infections for many consecutive days before going forward with this. And you have seen Asian countries be really tepid about opening these travel corridors, even with countries with a low risk of infection. And that, Julia, is in stark contrast to what we're seeing, for instance, in Europe, where there are some countries there with free borders despite this resurgence in cases. Yeah, you know, I have my head in my hands when I listen to the management tools that are being used in uh, countries over near where you are versus what we've seen in Europe and here in the United States. It has to be managed or it's not possible at all. Selena, great to have the details and they'll just have to be flexible. Selena Wang, thank you for that. All right, these are the stories making headlines around the world. The World Health Organization says around 80% of European countries are seeing a rise in COVID numbers. On Wednesday, Italy recorded its highest daily increase in coronavirus cases since the beginning 
of the pandemic. European leaders, meanwhile, meeting in Brussels for a two-day summit on Brexit. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson previously set today as the final possible date for a trade deal to be agreed. That won't now happen, but Prime Minister Johnson has indicated he'll wait for EU leaders to finish their discussions Friday before deciding on the UK's next steps. Thailand's government has issued an emergency decree banning gatherings of more than five people in Bangkok. It's designed to stifle pro-democracy demonstrations that have gripped the country now for months. Police arrested several protest leaders after thousands of people marched on Wednesday, calling for the prime minister to resign. All right, those are just some of the headlines we are watching. And now we're going to take a break. So uh, first move, we'll be back after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where U.S. stocks are set to fall for a third straight session as stimulus hopes fade further. And the United States this morning reporting an additional 898,000 people seeking first-time jobless benefits. Fears that governments are also still unable to get a handle on rising COVID cases playing into sentiment too, I think, as France, Germany and the U.K. announce fresh health restrictions. In the meantime, shares of banking giant Morgan Stanley lower pre-market despite beating on both the top and bottom line like Goldman. And JP Morgan results were boosted by strong trading revenues up some 20% in Q3. I think it's a case of buy the rumour, sell the fact. Meanwhile, shares of cloud computing firm Fastly are tumbling after warning that business from its largest customer, TikTok, has slowed due to the uncertainty over the Chinese app's future in the United States. All right, there's no end of things to discuss. Lisa Shalit joins us now. She's Chief Investment Officer at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. Lisa, great to have you on the show as always. We can be glass half empty today and say there's plenty of things to concern investors, whether it's election risk, earnings risk, concerns about a lack of additional stimulus here in the United States. Does it give investors pause for thought here? Oh, absolutely. Look, I, you know, we've been in the recovery phase uh, of this market, in our humble opinion, really since uh, the end uh, of July. And that's meant, you know, that we're really range bound with a high degree of volatility as, you know, the market, which has com- really completely recovered and even achieved new all time highs on September 2nd, uh, has to wait for the fundamentals to catch up. And, you know, we're just not there yet. And as we enter third quarter earnings, uh, despite the fact that, you know, earnings revisions had come up coming into the quarter, um, you know, uh, expectations at these levels have just been quite high. And so we expect that we're going to have these periodic pauses around uncertainty and then bursts of optimism. And that's really what we're seeing. Uh, I think in the latest week, obviously, some of the news we're getting out of Europe is distressing with regard to their second wave. Uh, And that's really kind of crushed their bond markets and the German Bund uh, yields there. And and that obviously uh, we think is having an effect anchoring, uh, you know, our 10 year treasuries and in turn, you know, uh, putting putting some pressure on on stock markets around that type of, uh, you know, uh, uh, COVID-19 related uncertainty. It's very hard for for an investor to build some kind of 
healthy, diversified portfolio here, given what you're describing when you're looking at what's going on in the bond market, you're looking at what's going in in, in the stock market too. My, my first boss actually at Morgan Stanley used to say to me, healthy markets do not all go up at once and all go down at once. That's not healthy. What do you do as an investor at this moment? Yeah, so what you know, one of our uh, theme songs in the current uh, environment is, uh, you know, love stocks, but hate the market. And what we mean by that <laughs> uh, is that this is just not a time that we would be, you know, playing aggressively in the passive indices, you know, owning, quote unquote, the market. Um, we think that this is the type of volatility that really requires uh, stock selection and active management and looking for those things, uh, those those companies, those stocks, those bonds, you know, that are getting thrown out, baby in the bathwater, uh, you know, type uh, analogies. You know, and as we've talked about and you alluded to this, you know, one of the single most mispriced securities in the market today, we fear, um, is the U.S. 10-year Treasury. You know, mm. we did a, just a rough, rough back of the envelope uh, analysis that said if all you owned in a 60-40 portfolio and the bond part of your portfolio were 10-year treasuries and the U.S. stock market went down, you know, 10 to 15 percent, how much would yields have to go down uh, on the 10-year to completely offset that? And it's close to 150 basis points, which would bring, you know, U.S. nominal 10-year yields from you know, something like 70 basis points today to maybe, you know, minus 70 basis points. Um, and so that's just an extraordinary move that's unlikely to happen. And so treasuries are not playing that diversifying role uh, that investors have historically needed them to play uh, in these periods of, 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 of volatility. So, you know, we're really asking clients to, to look at things much more on a security specific level to get some diversification. Yeah, I mean, you raised so many great points there. Bonds are not the safe haven that you think they are in a stock market sell-off because to your point about bringing the yield down, that means the price of the bond goes up and the the maths of it doesn't work right now to provide that level of security. Very, very important point. Lisa, just very quickly in terms of election risk, because I'm asking all our guests this, what's in the price at this moment? Are we looking at a democratic sweep? Are we looking at a split government? What do you think's in the price and how might stocks in particular react post-election? Yeah, so you know, our our contention is that really over the last um, two and a half weeks, the widening of the U.S. presidential polls um, has given the market some degree of certainty. Um, not only that they that the market seems to know who the winner of the presidential election will be, but that it will be a a, uh, a set of information that we get closer to November third uh, than dragging out, and that has been. Uh, I think one of the sources of optimism in the market over the last uh, 10 days. I think right now, with the presidential uh, election potentially uh, um, uh, understood, I think that the focus is now on the Senate. And there, I think it's much, much closer. I think it's it, there's much more uncertainty. And that's really going to gauge, as we know, how much spending and where that spending gets done. And so, um, you know, uh, our view is that right now, this is a market that is hungry 
for fiscal stimulus and is baking in, particularly I know uh, us at Morgan Stanley, in terms of our V-shaped recovery thesis, we're still looking for, you know, close to $1.5 trillion in additional stimulus. Uh, and, you know, I think if it if if we get a Biden win and uh, we still have a Republican Senate, uh, I think that that there's going to continue to be contention about the size of that next uh, CARES 2.0 bill uh, and where the money gets spent. Does yeah. the money get spent uh, on clean energy infrastructure uh, and at the state and municipal level, which seems to have been a, a more democratic set of priorities, um, or does the money, you know, get spent um, in in some of these other areas, um, uh, you know, that that have been debated? So just I think agreeing that's anything to- at this stage would be good, Lisa. I, I have to go because I'm uh, I'm going to lose you very shortly. Great to have you with us. Thank okay. you so much. And the best phrase: love stocks, but hate the you. market. <laughs> Lisa yeah. Shallot, Chief Investment <laughs> Officer at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. The market opens next. Be Stay well. with us. Welcome back to First Move. And U.S. stocks are up and running this Thursday. As expected, it's a weaker open across the board. Tech stocks, as you can see, under most pressure, down some 1.2 percent. Investors disappointed by the continued stalemate over stimulus when assistance is clearly needed. And the data is telling us that almost 900,000 more Americans filing for jobless claims in the past week. That's the highest level since August. Treasury Secretary Mnuchin says the White House hasn't yet given up. Restaurant owners, though, bracing for a fresh set of problems as we head towards winter. Eateries, including this one in Virginia, expanded outdoor seating by taking over parking spaces. But colder weather could mean fewer customers. The National Restaurant Association says one in six restaurants have already closed. It's the industry that's seen the biggest surge in unemployment. And without a significant relief plan from Congress, up to 85 percent of independent restaurants may close permanently. So let's hear directly from one restaurant owner. Naomi Pomeroy joins us now from Portland, Oregon. She runs Beast Restaurant there and is the co-founder of the Independent Restaurant Coalition. Naomi, great to have you on the show. I know you'll talk about the challenges you've faced with your award-winning restaurant, but talk to me about your decision to set up the Independent Restaurant Coalition because you recognize the industry needed a voice. Yeah, of course. I mean, I've been in my little bubble in Portland um, running restaurants for the last 20 years or so. Um, You know, my restaurant beast is very small. um, And I realized, of course, across the country, I have, you know, thousands of friends uh, who run independent, smaller restaurants as well. And it really felt like we needed our own voice. Um, You know, before I helped to start the coalition, I didn't even realize um, you know, that 76% of restaurants across the country are actually independently owned smaller businesses. So really, you know, everything from the white linen uh, tablecloth restaurants that you see to a mom and pop diner um, just really needed some representation and help because we employ, uh, you know, we're the second largest private sector employer in all of the country behind healthcare. So I think it's just really important that we talk about that and uh, figure out how to get some federal help. 
You know, it's interesting that you mentioned those kind of numbers because I remember when I was assessing the data that came through from the Paycheck Protection Scheme, the small business loans, the cheaper loans that were given by the government, and the proportion that went to restaurants seemed incredibly low. Why do you think that was? You know, I think a lot of it is really ultimately about access. Um, unfortunately, um, you know, when you work in the restaurant industry, you're sort of head down working big, long 16 hour days. Lots of restaurants are run by um, immigrants and minorities, um, women and uh, other people that maybe don't have the same kind of access that um, someone with big banking connections might have, frankly. I mean, we certainly learned that throughout the process. The suggestion has been perhaps a stabilization fund of some sort, a cash pot of money would be better because to your point as well, there's razor thin margins in restaurants anyway. Wages are relatively yeah. low. The ability even to take on any form of debt perhaps is another um, impediment to taking money, even if it's a 1% loan. That's absolutely true. You know, a lot of restaurants already have to get started with some kind of debt. Um, restaurants are usually founded on a dream, frankly. Um, and honestly, it, it really takes something extra above and beyond to support these uh, small businesses. Um, 95 cents of every dollar actually um, that comes into a restaurant goes back out into the community. And the majority of that is through uh, payroll. Frankly, we employ a huge number of people. And right now, 2.3 million of uh, the jobless here in the United States are coming directly from our sector. And we actually represent one out of every four uh, jobless claims. And actually, what you mentioned at the top of the show here about, um, you know, suddenly the numbers are, are going way up. I really think that has to do with the fact that a lot of people's paycheck protection, people who did get paycheck protection, that money is actually running out now. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people were able to hire, hire people back. And that's sunsetting right around now. My paycheck protection ends uh, October 20th, actually. So yeah, we're all really feeling it. And I think there's going to be a flood of layoffs if we don't do something. You mentioned a fund. Um, you know, a $120 billion fund, which is our ask, sounds like a lot of money. Uh, but we have had all kinds of independent research um, done that shows that that would generate up to $270 billion in revenue immediately. So wow. really, it's sort of a no brainer. I mean, that's a great investment. Yeah, it is. And jobs are everything, particularly as we head into winter. And I mean, what, what about for your business? And I know you've set up a class action lawsuit because even insurance and many small businesses thought they'd have insurance if they were shut down as business disruption. And it seems like the insurers are making it tough to, to make a claim. That's right. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of evidence that insurers have gotten together and uh, wholeheartedly denied every restaurant claim that I've heard of. I haven't I've heard of a single person. Um, but, you know, if you own a restaurant and you haven't filed a claim yet, uh, you really need to jump on it because I think it is really important. I mean, obviously, you know, I've owned my restaurant beast for over 13 years. I've been paying into that system for the entirety of it, expecting that if something happened that would shut my business down, that I would be covered for those revenue losses. That's what we pay for insurance for. So, you know, not to get on the soapbox too much about it. I mean, you're right. I do have a class action lawsuit and a lot of people are starting to join that suit because clearly uh, insurance is for situations that are exactly like this. As far as my restaurant beast goes, it's so small. 
uh, frankly, I haven't been able to reopen it it's safely. Uh, we have a very small sidewalk patio, so we're not like some of the places that have been able to reopen. And we served a six-course tasting menu, which is kind of not really what you think of for to-go food. So it's been a struggle. Um, and we're actually going to have to pivot the entire business and sort of change the model, which obviously costs money, too. And what we need really is to be able to take creative minds like mine and my friends, you know, who, who run mm. these um, industries who are support the backbone of America. You know, when you think about what do you do when it's your birthday or your anniversary or, you know, you're celebrating something or mourning something, people eat in restaurants. That's what they do. You know, so frankly, it's just something that we have to really put our money behind because it obviously will generate an incredible amount of return instantly and put people back to work, which is what yeah. we really need to do for the economy. Yeah, you've sold me. And I actually looked at your website and your food looks incredibly beautiful. So come oh, back and talk to us with you. the pivot. We'll, we'll do our best to help. I would love to. Thank, <laughs> thank you so, so much. much. Co-founder of Independent Bye. Restaurant Coalition and the owner of Beast Restaurant in Portland. Right. Can you imagine what would happen if computers used to present election night results were hacked? That's a threat. Microsoft is actively working to prevent details on its work and its success. Next. Welcome back to the show. We're just 19 days away from the presidential election here in the United States. And one of the big talking points in the run-up has been the risk of election interference. And according to Microsoft, a new serious threat is ransomware. The company said, uh, said earlier this week it took action to disrupt TrickBot, which it calls one of the world's most infamous and prolific distributors of ransomware. It could, for example, infect computer systems used to report election night results, seizing those systems at a prescribed hour to cause maximum chaos. Wow. We're joined by Tom Burt, Corporate Vice President of Customer Security and Trust at Microsoft. Tom, great to have you on the show once again. We've given viewers a sense there, but just lay out the threat and how prolific is this? Well, the threat is a serious one, and it's been recognized as such by both the technology sector, but also government. Um, Chris Krebs, the director of CISA in Department of Homeland Security, has been talking about this threat for some time. And the challenge is exactly what you described, is that this software could be used by uh, cyber criminals looking to make money, by nation states looking to disrupt the election in order to um, tie up, to lock up the computers being used for some part of the voting process on election day and not and not reveal the key to let you get those computers operating again until you pay a significant ransom. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine the chaos that would cause. And they've infected a number of Internet of Things devices as well. We're enjoying greater connectivity than we've ever had before. But then it can access corporations to households. We're all potentially vulnerable. We, we all are very much potentially vulnerable. And these botnets, these criminal networks of um, infected devices that have been secretly infected by these criminal syndicates with their software so they can control your computer. This is a real plague on the internet. And so that's one of the reasons why we've been working to disrupt the botnets and are the real focus on how they might impact the election this year. And who's doing this, Tom, before we talk about what the Digital Crimes Unit for you guys have actually been up to? Who's doing this? Is it is it networks? Is it nation states? How accurate can you be in tracing where the threat's coming from? 
the threat of ransomware can come from a number of different sources. Um, and that can include these, these well-established syndicates of criminals who can live in many different countries but work together um, to, to conduct their crime, but also nation states. Um, and actors who are controlled or directed by governments can also use ransomware to try to create some disruption. So we're concerned about both of those risks. Tom, talk me through what the Digital Crimes Unit did in what you took down. I know it involved the court order, working with telecommunication companies. Just talk me through what was required and what was done. In this instance, we identified one particular botnet, this one called TrickBot, that has been a plague on the financial services industries. It's been stealing money from consumers for a number of years. It's really an infamous botnet but it also is known as a prime distributor of this ransomware um, malware. And we decided that if we could possibly take that botnet down prior to the election, it would help us reduce the risk that ransomware would be utilized as an attack during the election itself. So what the Digital Crimes Unit did is they have um, forensic investigators, engineers who actually look very carefully at how does the botnet operate. We actually take some computers and get them infected on purpose by the botnet so that we can then communicate with those who are controlling the botnet and observe what's happening. And it takes a lot of work and a lot of time to build that out. And once we know how it operates, what its architecture is, then we built partnerships in this case, in extensive partnerships, including other technology companies like Symantec was a great partner. And we worked together to then go to court and get an order from the court that will um, instruct everyone who, who controls, who hosts part of the infrastructure that the criminals are using to block that infrastructure. And that's been, um, uh, we got that court order. It was sealed until we could launch our work to actually block that infrastructure. And we've been working on that um, since uh, a week ago, and we're making really great progress on shutting down this botnet. Tom, it's great work. I know it's just a piece of the Defending Democracy program. I was just looking at it here, and this is where you work with global governments and institutions to protect democracy and election integrity, which is fantastic work by, by you guys at Microsoft. Tom, who did this? Where do you think this emanated from? The best we can say today is that it appears that the people operating this trick bot, uh, botnet um, operate from somewhere in Eastern Europe. And whether that's from a single country or multiple countries, we can't say for sure, but it does appear to be operated from Eastern Europe. Uh, the obvious response there would be it's coming from Russia, but you would have told me that if you could, I'm assuming, so we can't be so specific. Eastern Europe. I can't. That's yeah. right. I can't be quite that specific, but certainly um, Russia could be one of the countries from which this botnet is operated. Yeah. Great to have you with us, Tom. Great work from you and the team. Thank you so much. Tom Burt there, Thank Corporate you, Vice Thanks President of Customer Security and Trust at Microsoft. Right, some breaking news now just into CNN. Vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris leaving the campaign trail until Sunday after one of her flight crew tested positive for coronavirus. Her campaign says she did not have direct contact with the crew member, but out of an abundance of caution, they're cancelling her travel schedule. All right, G20 countries offering a new lifeline to nations struggling under the strain of the pandemic. 
But the World Bank says more needs to be done to support them. We'll discuss what that might look like next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The World Bank is encouraging G20 countries to do more to help poorer nations weather the financial impact of the pandemic. On Wednesday, the G20 agreed to suspend debt payments on emergency loans for an additional six months. But the World Bank says a more radical action is needed. John Defteris joins us now. JD, great to have you with us. I think we need to be talking about the F word here, and that is forgiveness. Well... Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, uh, Julia. And they keep on saying at the G20, do whatever it takes, but it doesn't include the F word. Let's put it that way. And this is a very tricky window of time uh, because the second wave is settling in primarily on the G7 countries. So they're showing some uh, hesitation. So from the top, the IMF Managing Director, Kristalina Georgieva, said uh, it's important not to pull back on the stimulus right now. Uh, and it's very important, uh, according to David Malpas, the World Bank president, to help those who need it most. So they're talking about $25 billion uh, to go to the poorest countries as a proposal and $12 billion uh, to deal with vaccines. Extraordinary number that's coming right now, Julia. 150 million being added to extreme poverty, which Malpas calls, he says, a depression for those below the poverty line. Let's take a listen. For many developing countries and the people in the poorest countries, it is truly a depression, a, a catastrophic event, uh, and and it is uh, continuing to add to the ranks of uh, those in extreme poverty. So David Malpas uh, suggesting this is a, the biggest challenge uh, for extreme poverty. Uh, Julius, you know, they had this target to reduce uh, poverty by 2030 under the UN SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. They've now admitted because of COVID-19, that's impossible. Another theme that came out I thought was interesting from the International Monetary Fund, being blunt enough to say to China, you need to get to the table with your banks. They've lent almost $300 billion to Latin America and to Africa over the last 20 years. You can't have debt relief for those two continents without China at the table. It's the first time I've heard that. Back to you. Yeah, I wonder what China thinks of that suggestion, quite frankly, but it's a great point to be making. And JD, full credit to you because you were saying this back in March that these discussions needed to be have, have mm. been having had ASAP. So full credit to you. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. John Defterius. Take there. care. Thank Thanks. you. All right. That's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chesley. Stay safe and we'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards.
Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Ben Mankiewicz. On this season of The Plot Thickens, we're exploring the world of renegade movie director John Ford. Ford was a living legend, a cinematic giant, and also a notorious egomaniac who could unload on actors. You'll hear from the best of them, John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, even Ricardo Montalban. Find out how Ford's legacy survives his personal demons. The Plot Thickens, Decoding John Ford, hosted by me, Ben Mankiewicz. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.